0: Hi, I'm Sohail Janasari, a migration researcher and activist. I'm here to welcome you to the Qualitative Applied Health Research Centre's podcast series called Qualitative Conundrums. Qualitative research always brings up a lot of questions for researchers. How many people should I talk to? How should I interpret what they say? Do themes emerge or are they actively created? At the Qualitative Applied Health Research Center, mercifully shortened to quark, we aim to make space for these debates. And this series is all about tackling fundamental qualitative conundrums. We will speak to esteemed academics, will offer their expert opinions on how you can solve the questions that plague your qualitative research.
1: Today, we're very lucky to have with us Dr. Michelle O'Reilly. Uh, Michelle, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Yes, certainly, thank you. Um, hello, I, I'm Dr. Michelle O'Reilly. I work at the University of Leicester as an Associate Professor of Communication in Mental Health and a Chartered Psychologist in Health. Uh, and I also work for Leicestershire Partnership NHS Trust um, as a Research Consultant and Quality Improvement Advisor.
1: Great, thank you. And today we're going to be talking about quality in qualitative research, which sounds pretty fundamental. So I'm going to start with a broad, perhaps kind of obvious question, but why is it important to think about quality in qualitative research?
2: Um, There are lots of reasons why it's important to think about quality in qualitative research, but I guess one of the fundamental contemporary reasons really is about competitiveness. Uh, So most people who undertake qualitative research either work in some area of practice or they're academic. Um, But either way, what they have to demonstrate is that their research is done well, that it has meaning. um, And for many researchers in the modern day, that it can be applied to real world settings um, so that it has some applicability so that recommendations can be made. But if the methodology or the methods or the process is fundamentally flawed in some way, then the meaning of those findings that come out of that project are going to be less useful uh, in an applied setting um, and they'll be picked apart by critics. So competitively for funding, for publications, um, for acceptance um, and as a useful form of evidence, actually attending to quality indicators and recognising the ways in which we can put together a robust project that adheres to the very kind of Main indicators of quality around that methodological approach will actually help to make qualitative paradigms more competitive in the future and more accepted by critics.
1: So, just to clarify, what are we competing with?
2: So, we're competing with, well, for for funding, you're competing with the big quantitative studies, particularly. Um, So, we know that quantitative research tends to attract more funding because it's outcomes driven rather than process driven. Um, And all academics are expected to compete for funding and demonstrate that their research is valuable in an economic way. And so therefore, when you put in an application that's wholly qualitative, you have to demonstrate to those funding bodies and the reviewers of those funding applications that your project is worth the money. And one of the ways to do that is to demonstrate that what is produced from that project is high quality.
1: I'm kind of curious about this focus on application so you were saying that quality is about how much it reflects and can be applied to and is meaningful for real world circumstances so what about theory what about other sort of ways of thinking about research it seems you know that other things might be important to quality too
2: absolutely um i mean qualitative research is really rich and heterogeneous we know this Uh, one of the really exciting things about the qualitative paradigm is the range of theories that inform the different methodologies and the different ways in which qualitative research can be done. So absolutely, quality in theory. And I guess one of the big issues we see with student projects is that there isn't always that congruence between their theoretical understanding of a qualitative uh, piece of work, the methodology that they adopt, and the methods that they choose, and the way in which they disseminate that knowledge afterwards. Um, and so you do have to connect the dots when you're doing good qualitative work.
1: And so picking up on that, I know that you wrote a um, relatively recent editorial, I would say quite recent, it's this year, um, <laughs> around um, is- approaches to equality and qualitative research. And you seem to be saying that we have to recognise and accept this heterogeneity and maybe have different quality assurance processes for different methods. Can you talk a bit more about that?
2: Absolutely. And I I guess I would preface this by saying this is a perspective. um, And it's our perspective. Jessica Lester and I wrote this um, editorial and we put together the special issue. Um, And it's our perspective that actually different kinds of qualitative approaches, different kinds of qualitative methodologies, they don't all adhere to the same universal set of quality markers. Um, And I would recommend that students read more about this because there are other scholars out there who would take issue with that particular perspective and disagree with us. So it's quite important that a student can understand the different sides of the argument. However, from our point of view, and the reason why we put that special issue together, is the methodologies that are available to qualitative research are different. So you know, they have different theoretical frameworks and that's something we've already alluded to today already. Uh, but they also use different methodological approaches. They use different kinds of methods to collect their data. They have different belief systems around the positionality of the researcher and they do different kinds of analytic techniques. So for us, a single set of universal markers cannot legitimately apply to all of that different diversity within one single paradigm. So we put the qualitative paradigm together as if it's a single entity, but of course it isn't. Not in the same way that quantitative tends to get pushed together in a single paradigm. Within the qualitative paradigm, you have a huge range of diversity and heterogeneity, lots of different perspectives and ideas, a huge range of epistemological positions, lots of different ways of collecting data and analysing it. And that has to be accounted for in terms of how you do the project um, and the quality markers that you adhere to in doing so. And so we did the special issue to kind of demonstrate that and celebrate that diversity within a paradigm.
1: Brand. So quality and how you assess it might depend on the beliefs you bring to the method and your research approach. Which makes me think. Does quality perhaps not just depend on your method and your philosophical beliefs, but also the culture you are working in? Are there different things, which, especially if you're thinking about applying uh, applied research as a marker of quality, like perhaps different things are important in different places. So how does culture play into this?
2: So culture, of course, plays a role. It's not so much about the quality indicators. It's more about their implementation. So one of the things we need to consider when we're um, applying quality markers to our work is how they're implemented in practice and in the practice of doing the research is what I mean. Um, And so your cultural position will affect your positionality and your reflexivity as a researcher it might also shape the way in which you go out and collect your data so again we we can't treat things as monolithic or static so a focus group we often think of it as being a a singular method of data collection Um, and of course there are markers of how to do a good focus group but the implementation of the focus group schedule, the design of the focus group, the way in which it's run is inevitably going to be influenced by the culture of the researcher and the culture of the participants, but also the expectations and goals of the focus group and the topic of the focus group and various, all sorts of other things. So it, c- it can still be a really good focus group, even if it's run quite differently to another good focus group. But what matters is the core indicators and how that. Um, Plays out in practice. Uh, But of course, positionality and reflexivity are celebrated in qualitative research. So, of course, those things are going to shape the way in which any kind of method is implemented.
1: And on positionality and reflexivity, it'd be great if you could give a very, very quick definition of them. And then maybe um, (laughs) it's it's, it's a tough ask, but we're a podcast.
2: (laughs) Yes, Um, researchers have been grappling with that for a long time.
1: And then on top of that, I would like you to sort of tell us a bit about how that might relate to quality.
2: Yeah. So trying to summarise two huge concepts in like 20 seconds for a podcast, of course, is um, going to not do justice to either concept. But just for the sake of simplicity. Uh, so positionality is the position one takes within research. So you might come at a piece of work as a feminist, for example, just as an, a simple example. And so therefore your feminist ideology is going to shape the way in which you ask your questions. It's going to shape the way in which you do your analysis and accepting that kind of position that you're taking on the project before you start and how it infiltrates the whole project will be really important. So reflexivity it has some similarities with positionality in the sense that this is how you reflect and take account of the way in which your position as a researcher might have shaped the research. So you reflect on how, who you are as a person, um, as a woman, as a middle-aged woman as I am, how that might have shaped and influenced my motivation to undertake the project, how it might have shaped the way I did the project um and so the example i usually give for this is i did my phd a fair few years ago in family therapy and on mental health Um and that was shaped and influenced by the fact that i've got an autistic brother and so i already knew a huge amount about mental health and services um, from a very personal experiential point of view but not an academic one and so doing the phd bridged the personal and the academic but acknowledging that and recognizing how that might have shaped what I picked out of the analysis and what I saw as important in the analysis was part of that reflexive process.
1: And presumably part of why it's important to have that if you are trying to do good quality work?
2: Absolutely, yes. Recognising that there are certain things that you might have pulled out of the data or seen as important in the data that someone else might not have seen as, as so important is part of that reflexive process. And of course, it impacts on those issues around cherry picking data and showcasing bits of data. Um, qualitative projects are huge. The data sets are usually huge. You can't disseminate everything. So you, it's automatically a selective process.
1: Yeah. That selective process really kills me. But, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really key. I wanted to ask you about how we can really describe the work we're doing in a, Detailed and transparent way, because as far as I understand, transparency about methodology um, is a marker of quality. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I'm doing qualitative research, there's only so far I can break it down until it just becomes something which happened in my head. So am I not doing enough to really think through my steps? Or is there a limit to how much I can describe to you the process of doing the research?
2: It's always going to be limited. Of course it is. So one of the important things about transparency is that you are transparent during the process of undertaking the research in your reflexive memos, in your diary taking in your note-taking, it's essential that you capture everything as you go along so that you're not relying on your memory when you get to the end of the project of what you think you did, because you'll never remember what you think you did. It will never be as accurate as if you're writing as you go along. Inevitably, in dissemination, a lot of that is going to get lost to the external audience, and that's a real shame. But again, it partly depends on who your audience is. So I've written journal articles that are as small as 3,500 words for kind of medical style journals. And unfortunately, certain kinds of audiences are less interested in the processual aspect of a qualitative project, and they're more interested in the findings and the meaning of those findings. Now, as long as you have managed to do a high quality project, then what you're reporting will still be high quality. But of course, it inevitably misses out some of that detail because three and a half thousand words, you're not going to be able to put that in, of course not. Some of the longer, more qualitatively oriented journals, however, are eight or nine thousand words. And so there is some scope for more of that um, procedural detailing methodology for some of that reflexivity in the way you shape your discussion. For some of that transparency to come kind of to leak through the introduction, the method, the findings and the discussion section of the paper so that a reader can start to see the process of how those decisions were made, why they were made and what and how that conforms to the methodology framework that you're following so and of course then you have other mechanisms as well like podcasts and you have conference presentations Um, and again depending on who your audience is some audiences are much more interested in that whole reflection on a process than other audiences and you need to make that judgment about who who is going to benefit from that story and who actually just needs the kind of basic findings from the project.
1: So I'm getting it right, but there's a difference here between quality in your research process and perhaps quality in the research dissemination.
2: You should always have quality in the process. You should do a good quality um, project that conforms to the indicators for that particular methodological approach, because then whatever you're reporting, you can be secure in the knowledge that you've done it to the right high standard and you can say that it's been done to that high standard even if you don't give the audience the details of how it was achieving those high standards you know it has done and that's the key so yes there is a difference it's not that the dissemination loses the quality it just loses the detail of how that quality was achieved there's a difference there um, that's quite important
1: okay great thank you i kind of wanted to ask about so i've been doing a lot of qualitative research and as part of that process i'm expected to by institutions by journals by examiners to have quality assured my work so to go through a checklist sometimes a generic checklist sometimes a checklist which is slightly more tailored to the method i'm using and tick off or rates or give some sort of um qualitative assessment of uh how the project's been done or to if it's a review a qualitative review to to do that on multiple other papers but i know that some people very strongly believe that these have become a tick box exercise and that perhaps we're missing the uh, wood for the trees and really just unnecessarily focusing in on this so where do you stand on this do you think that we should do away with these checklists?
2: I sit somewhere in the middle, I guess. I I actually agree with certain scholars that checklists are a little bit too confining and problematic, especially for certain methodological processes like conversation analysis, for example. Checklists don't serve us well all the time. Part of the problem with checklists is they get over-relied on by people who don't understand qualitative research. Or, for example, you get a paper sent to a set of reviewers and the journal requests that they use the core Q checklist, which can be entirely inappropriate for certain kinds of research. Um, and actually, there needs to be some flexibility in how those things are applied so that reviewers can say, actually, this paper doesn't need the core Q checklist because core Q is designed for interviews and focus groups. And this is not an interview or focus group study. So in that sense, I, I always resist getting too locked into checklists. I think they're useful for undergraduate students, for example, people who are new to qualitative methods. I think they're also useful for funding bodies when they're not quite sure and they haven't got a qualitative expert on their panel to make decisions. Um, I think they can be very helpful in teaching qualitative methods. But I think as expertise builds and as training builds and as we become better qualitative methodologists, we should be relying less on checklists. And more on experience, creativity, innovation, um, and knowledge around the method and the methodology.
1: So, what about, if not checklists then, what about certain principles that we try and achieve? So, for instance, I've mentioned transparency, you know, there might be other principles that qualitative research should aim for. Is this something, some broad guiding principles that could be useful?
2: Absolutely. I think guiding principles are a very good idea. Um, And I think most qualitative researchers kind of know what they are broadly. And it comes back to what I said earlier. It's not so much about a rigid guiding principle. It's about how that principle gets implemented so that it's tailored to not just the methodology and the method, but actually the positionality of the research and the project that's being done. So, you know, what does transparency mean in the current context of this project? And I think that's what often gets overlooked. We talk about these things as if they're static, real things that you can conform to. But actually, it's not as straightforward as that, because it will have a slightly different meaning and a different way of being implemented, depending on what it is you're trying to achieve with a particular project, and also the team, because you get uh, interdisciplinarity and teams from different backgrounds, different training, and they've got different ways of looking at a research problem. Now, personally, I think that's absolutely fabulous because what you get is some creative thinking, you get some really rich discussions, particularly when you've got data and you're starting to look at that and explore it together. But of course, that will have implications for quality and those guiding principles and how they get implemented into a particular project. And that's where it's much more difficult for reviewers and students to kind of capture how that gets implemented, because they're trying to stick with that rigid checklist that they think has to be checked off to make the project viable.
1: Where is all this pressure coming from then?
2: So the pressure is mostly external and I guess it depends partly on the field you work in and so I'm a health researcher and so the problem is we're competing with medics and you know huge funding pots of money that go to randomised control trials, that's what we're competing with and you have to be able to stand on that stage with epidemiologists and virologists and biologists and say actually qualitative research is actually just as important and it does it in different ways and it's just as high quality as an RCT but it's not outcomes focused in the same way but that the pressure definitely comes from universities so anyone who works in a university is under pressure to publish in certain kinds of journals they're under pressure to bring in certain amounts of funding and they're under pressure to teach certain kinds of curriculums And if you don't do those things, then you won't have a job in the future. So you do have to shape what you do to suit these huge institutional, structural things that we have in society. And that's where the pressure comes from. So a little bit of flexibility and adjustment is probably required in thinking. Because unfortunately, it is now about impact, impact pathways and applied research and what you can demonstrate in terms of outcomes and that goes for qualitative research as well as quantitative research. So we have to make it work otherwise there might not be a future for qualitative research.
1: Yeah. So why did it end up like this? Why isn't it the case that qualitative research is the dominant mode of research and quantitative researchers are striving to meet our standards and be understood in our language? (laughs)
2: I think that's an almost impossible question to answer. I'm not really sure. I think um historically qualitative research is newer than quantitative research. I guess positivism is an, in, an ingrained position to take. It's the way people generally view the world unless it's challenged. So I think there is a certain amount of ingrained thinking about measurement and numbers and statistics that kind of pre-exists outside of academia and outside of the research world anyway. Um, And I think where we see the greater competitiveness arising has been mostly from the evidence based movement, which did grow out of medicine. It was in medicine where there were concerns about medical research and what it meant and the outcomes of medical research not being standardised practices and things like that. And so the evidence based movement occurred that basically said that medicine needs to be based on the best evidence available so that, you know, Uh, medical practice is informed by high quality medical research. Now, interestingly, when that evidence-based movement began, clinical judgment and patient experience, the kind of things we associate more qualitatively, were part of the definition of what evidence was. And, you know, that was really important. But gradually, it seems to have moved away and become much more about outcomes and whether you can prove an outcome or disprove. Uh, as the case may be, disprove a hypothesis and gradually as evidence has kind of infiltrated other applied fields like education and social care and mental health uh, and various other fields like human geography, et cetera, this this push for evidence seems to have become much more synonymous with outcomes focused research, which is generally quantitative. And the qualitative community has responded to that. And we've seen a huge rise in popularity of qualitative research, particularly in fields like nursing and social work. But there is this kind of hidden battle about quality and value of the types of evidence that can be produced. And there is this kind of implicit hierarchy of evidence where qualitative research sits towards the lower end of the hierarchy.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And. I think some of these issues touch upon a series we're hoping to do next year around right. race colonialism and qualitative research. Because when you said qualitative research is relatively new, I was thinking from a colonial perspective, actually, you, from a post-colonial sort of lens, you can actually think of that. Well, we've been producing knowledge qualitatively for since the beginning of time, yes. um, but perhaps, uh, you know. <laughs> But, um, so there's, there's real interesting fundamental, um, underlying battles going on there. So thank you for, for giving an insight into that. That's really appreciated. I wanted to ask a question for, uh, I, I guess, our student listeners. So what tips do you have for someone new to qualitative research who is listening to what you're saying and perhaps they're doing a dissertation and they've got, six months to to do that and they really want to do primary research and they've got good links and they're they're doing it but they're worried about quality what what can you say to them
2: so my first tip would be maintain the passion for it because nothing will drive you more than your personal passion and motivation to do it Um, and I've never lost mine. After all these years of doing qualitative research, I'm still really passionate about fighting for its cause and enjoying the data collection process and the analytic process. So maintain the passion. I think the second thing I would say is read. So I always say to my undergraduate students, you read your way to a degree, you read your way to a dissertation, you can't ever read enough stuff So students seem to think that everything they read needs to make an appearance in the dissertation. And that is absolutely not true. Your references list will be a fraction of what you've read if you've done a good job. But actually reading and reading and reading will help you to conceptualise and understand some of those core issues within the paradigm of qualitative research, but also within the methodological approach that you have chosen. And all of that reading will then enable you to write a paragraph. So I always say again to my undergraduate students you might only write 12 lines but you may have had to read 12 papers to write those 12 lines and you might only cite three of the papers ultimately in the paragraph but the other nine papers will have helped you understand the issue so that you can write your 12 lines and that's you know you can never engage enough with the reading and there are some really good sources out there in terms of websites Even YouTube videos, you can watch YouTube videos. I know Braun and Clark, for example, have done some YouTube stuff around thematic analysis, if that happens to be your approach. In terms of quality, the special issue does cover all the main methodological approaches. So read whichever one of those papers happens to coincide with the approach that you've adopted and chosen but also read some of the generic stuff. It's important to understand the alternative arguments. So in this podcast, I've very much promoted the heterogeneity argument, the idea that each methodology has got some unique aspects of quality and unique indicators that need to be accounted for. There are other scholars out there who might disagree with that, and it's useful to get a sense of those wider arguments around quality, particularly the, the arguments around universal markers and the adaptation of quantitative concepts are really interesting to read as well. And by that, you need to form your own opinion. You know, it's always good to be shaped by supervisors and other scholars in the field and by listening to this kind of podcast. But ultimately, you need to decide as a student, where do you sit in relation to qualitative research and quality? What's your view? Which of the arguments make the most sense to you? And how are you going to utilise that and apply it in your own project?
1: Thank you. I've got to say, the people I've spoken to in this series so far, such as yourself, are very gracious in suggesting <laughs> that alternative opinions should always be read and, and people should come to their own decisions. And that's great advice and, and, and something that I think is um speaks to some of the kindness in uh, qualitative research, perhaps. So I'm curious about how you bring this to your teaching so you've given advice to students but is there any particular way that you teach qualitative research where you try and bring these lessons of quality out?
2: Yes I I generally don't deliver a whole lecture on quality (laughs) Uh, specifically it's more embedded into each of the other methods lectures that I do because I think you know especially for undergraduates who are starting to grapple they've got so many different arguments that are relevant to qualitative research that they have to grapple with and understand and quality is just one of those arguments. So I prefer to try and bring in little snippets of all the major issues into each of the lectures. So where I do a lecture on thematic analysis, for example, and we talk about the practicalities of doing coding and the different types of thematic analysis, I will bring in comments about quality, but also I prefer students to think for themselves. So whilst we give them tasters of key issues, we then get them debating in their small groups about things that matter. And so quite often they're asked to do some reading before they come to the lecture and the seminar. And then they're expected to engage in an activity or a task that really forces them to think about some of these issues around quality and how they might be resolved and why they might matter in practice and how that might be be problematic or beneficial you know and some of those wider political debates around funding and dissemination and, and you know those kinds of things as well trying to get them to think about a career post degree in case they want to go into PGR what they might do as a qualitative project and what they might want to go on to learn beyond this method series that they're doing as part of their undergraduate course.
1: Great thanks thanks for that insight we coming to the end of our time So last question is always, do you have anything else to add around quality and where can people read your work?
2: So I guess I would just say that, you know, that I feel that the debate is only just starting. I think, you know, that the recognition of quality in the contemporary research field has changed compared to when these arguments first started in the early 2000s. So there was quite a bit of writing around quality and qualitative research in 2001, 2002, and then it kind of dropped off a bit and it's kind of been revived over the last few years. And I think it's got a long way to go. I think there's a lot more arguments to be had. And I think it's through that creative thinking, through that dialogue, through that disagreement that actually we will start to make some progress on what we think of as quality in the different approaches. And so I say bring it on respond do your own work create your own arguments do your own reading and contribute to this quality debate because it's fascinating and it's important and it's only from a collective field approach that we will really start to embrace some of these different challenges with quality um, and I've forgotten your other bit of the question sorry.
1: <laughs> I, did a, I did a classic qualitative <laughs> uh, faux pas <laughs> never ask two questions and in, in, in... At once. Um, that was a test and a <laughs> demonstration for our listeners. Um, the other question was, where can we find your work?
2: So I do have a website on the University of Leicester web pages. So most of my publications are listed on the website. So that, yeah, just type my name into Google and you you'll find stuff I've written um, around mental health and quality and qualitative research and various other things like ethics, etc. <laughs>
1: Brilliant. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks, Michelle, for sharing her thoughts on what counts as quality and qualitative research. Hopefully we've gone a little bit of a way to solving that conundrum for you. Next episode is a real treat and I'm going to have to be on my best behaviour because I will be talking to my boss, Charlie Perfetus about how to use theory in qualitative research. It promises to be a great episode, so please join us soon. Thank you so much and see you soon.